Welcome to Homestead Story. We're Peter and Kristen. Join us as we share a new but old kind of family life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Homestead Story. We are coming to you from our Maryland homestead, where it is a rainy, kind of warm January. Yes, we are desperate for that one good Maryland snowstorm. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. it it's been just the entire month of January. It's been warm, but hopefully it's cooling down now. We have a couple hills on our property that are really good for sledding, and so we can just walk out you know, into our backyard and go sledding, and there's, there's a, a big hill down the street where everybody goes, and we can go there and I can't wait to go sledding with the kids. Yeah, well, with the five-year-old and the seven-year-old. Yeah, only the five-year-old and seven-year-old. <laughs> and if that sounds bad, yeah, I'm not looking forward to the two-year-old and three-year-old. So here's how it goes. You spend 20 minutes wrapping them up in, in a million pieces of clothes, and you have to put everyone on because they can't, they can't put it on themselves. And then you go outside, and immediately their gloves fall off because yep. it doesn't matter what kind of gloves you buy. They just come off immediately. And then... And then the two-year-old doesn't know any better, so he grabs snow or, or just trips and falls and, and right, you know, snow to the face. And then they start screaming. Or they so lose they put, a boot. Yeah. They, like, go to walk in the snow and the boot comes off. Yes, yeah, so you put the gloves back on and then they immediately fall off again. And what you do is you spend 10 minutes putting gloves on while they scream. Well, you just have to get that good picture. That's- you get, yeah. But then you get one good picture so you can put it on Facebook and everybody's like, oh, look, they're having fun in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was miserable. Yeah. But Bring them anyway. in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hopefully that snowstorm comes. Well, I want to share something really cool that I have been learning the past few months. So Pete and I, over the past couple years, have really just started questioning everything that we do. There's nothing anymore that we just do because this is what you're supposed to do. We've really been questioning everything. Right. I mean, when you start questioning, I don't trust the apples that are in the supermarket. At that point, you basically have to start over and say, well, okay, we need to make sure everything we're doing is what we really want to do. Yeah, right. So I am just like every normal human being. And just like every normal human being, I would wash my face. Of course. And then I would put a lotion on my face because my face would be kind of dry. And about four months ago, I just said, I'm just going to try something. I just want to try this little experiment. I'm washing my face and I'm stripping it of just its natural, you know, moisturizers and things like that. And then I'm putting a lotion on my face and I'm, I have become very aware of the chemicals in our skincare products. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, I was saying I'm putting all these chemicals on and I just want to see, I want to see if I really need these things. So four months ago, I decided to stop washing my face with any soap. I have not put, I have not put a drop of soap on my face in about four months. Gasp. And yeah. And Pete, how does my face look? You look beautiful. Well, thank you. (laughs) Yes. And it turns out all this time where I've been washing my face and then putting a lotion on my face, it has been completely unnecessary. I don't have, I don't have any blemishes. I'm not greasy. I'm not, I mean, I look just the same. Your face looks amazing and it doesn't look, you know, greasy or anything like that. Yes. Thank you. So all this time I've been buying these skincare products and they were completely unnecessary for me. And you know, everyone has different skin types, so this might not work for everybody, but I'm really saving a lot of money. I, I have not bought a, a soap or a lotion for my face at all. And I use a gentle, natural soap, obviously, for my hands, because your hands, you know, you're getting more germs and things on your hands. But my face has has not needed anything except for water. And it's it's working great. It's working great. <laughs> yeah, about a year ago, we actually... 
well, I had I learned a couple years ago about the chemicals that we have in our in our skincare products and. What we put on our skin... Well, turn over any bottle of anything that you have and look at the ingredients, and it's obvious, like, we don't know what any of them are. Yeah. Well, you and you wouldn't eat these things, but you say, oh, but it's, it's okay for me to put it on my skin. But what we put on our skin gets absorbed into our bloodstream, and it, it gets absorbed into our body. Which is kind of obvious. I mean, if you take yeah. a, a handful of, of lotion and put it in your body, where does it go? Right. It gets absorbed. Right. And there's other things that would get absorbed... Through the blood, yeah, like a like a nicotine patch or something, or or yeah. like a birth control patch, it just goes directly into your body yeah. from your skin. Yeah, and I know a lot of women and myself. You know, we're not going to put we don't want to put a birth control patch on our body because we don't want those synthetic hormones and those chemicals going into our body. We use natural family planning, but chemicals are also getting into our body through other things. I actually just recently found a study in the it was actually in the Huffington Post and. They talked about a study that was done in 2005 by the Environmental Working Group. I'm going to actually just quote the article. It was two studies that found toxic chemicals in the umbilical cord of newborn babies born in the U.S. They screened for more than 400 chemicals, and they found 287 toxins in the umbilical cord of newborns, and 217 of these chemicals were neurotoxins, and 208 of them are known to damage growth development and cause birth defects. So these chemicals are going to our babies. I mean, they're they're getting into our skin. So Pete and I are really trying to... Right. And I think some of the, the mindset there was that a bunch of these parabens and other things aren't going to be absorbed through the skin. And they thought that that was true. But now what they're finding is that mm-hmm. Well, they're getting into our bodies. Yeah. So. And again, there are so many of these chemicals that are outlawed by other countries. They're banned by the European Union. And once again, we're just putting them all over our bodies. And, and you know, people are saying, well, you know, what do the studies say? And again, yeah, it's, what the, the studies, studies are going to take a few years. But if it seems like it's not a bright idea, it's probably not a bright idea. Yeah. And so, then sure enough, the data does catch up to it eventually. Yeah, yeah. So last year, we started to look at our deodorants, and deodorant has aluminum in it. Yeah, I was... I. I I just started thinking about it at some point because when you're in, you know, elementary school or middle school, you start using deodorant because, you know, you start to need it and, um, and you just do it. And I was, I was like, what is this stuff? Yeah. It's an antiperspirant. It's literally stopping my pores up and not, they're not functioning the way they're supposed to. And it's being done with aluminum and chemicals. Yeah. That just doesn't like all day, every day, this stuff is just caked on my skin. That seems to me... Like, it's not a bright idea. Yeah, right. So we're like, okay, you know, we're starting to see the research of it's not a good idea to put aluminum into your skin. So we just, I, a year ago, I started making our own deodorants and it right. sounds... I mean, I work in an office. I need deodorant. I yeah, yeah. We're not like backwoods people that can just, you know, some cultures, it's socially acceptable to have body odor, but that is not our culture. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I don't find it pleasant either. Yes. So we don't want to go around smelling. So I make our own deodorant and it's so easy. And you hear that, you think, well, I would never know how to make deodorant. It seems so complicated. Well, it seems weird. I mean, (laughs) if this is unfamiliar to you, it's like as soon as you start making your own body products, that just seems like you've like gone off the cliff or something. (laughs) Yeah, but all all you need are the right ingredients. So uh, really the hard part is ordering the ingredients. It's like, you know, shea butter and coconut oil and baking soda and arrowroot flour and you just So all stuff that you could actually eat. Yeah, stuff that you could eat. And it works great. And so it's okay to go into your skin and I just mix it up and melt it together and then it hardens and you have your homemade deodorant. 
deodorant. And yeah, it might not work as well as store-bought deodorant and you might have to I mean, do you, does it work for you all day at work? If, no, it's only if I'm like on a hot day, if I'm working hard outside, then I'll, when I come inside, I'll have to reapply it. Right. But if it's just a normal day where I'm like at the office, but then it's, it's fine. And you'd rather reapply something than put yeah. chemical, these harmful chemicals all over your body. So um, that's been really a fun find. And, and just not and just realizing like, wow, this I, they've been selling me this soap and then my skin gets dry and then they're selling me the lotion and I don't need any of it. It's just right. great. And when you look at all your body products, it's intimidating to think, oh my gosh, how would I replace all these? Well, you ha- yeah, you but, have like cabinets full of this stuff. Yeah, but if you start just one at a time, like, oh wow, I, now I use a natural deodorant. And maybe these other things are harmful, but little by little you just start to learn and it becomes a natural part of your life. And one thing I love is my bathroom is so uncluttered. I just have, you know, very, just a couple things in my bathroom and I don't have like lotions and shampoo and this and that. And, or, you know, I do have shampoo, sorry, but I don't have like a million bottles everywhere. It's really nice. Yeah. We got, got rid of a whole bunch of that stuff. Yeah. Oh, the other thing was your, so Pete has, um, dandruff, sorry. (laughs) Oh my God. Now everyone knows. (laughs) Yeah. But, and you'd use a dandruff shampoo that, and you're like, this has these active chemical ingredients. And yeah, I would wash my hair every day with this, this dandruff shampoo because I would get dandruff and it would work like the dandruff would go away. But then I'm looking at that and be like, there's a million chemicals in here and it's using metal again to like mm-hmm. to prevent it. This doesn't make sense. So what I ended up doing is a couple times a week before I go to bed, I can put coconut oil or almond oil in my hair, put some of that in and just rub it into my scalp a little bit. And then I can, you know, wash it out in the shower the next day. And that's it. That's all I need. The dandruff goes away. Yeah. So you don't need that active ingredient, those metals to take care of it for you. Right. I'm using coconut oil, which... You know, is an ingredient in food you yes. can cook with. Yeah, and and some of these again, some of these the store bought stuff might work better, but you have to ask, why is it working so well? Like, what are you, what are we using? To I don't make even this? think that works better because oh, really? I, was, I had to do it every day. Yeah, actually, you don't, you haven't had any dandruff at all. Yeah, well, I I'll get it if I forget to like do the oil sometimes, but yeah, you know. and everybody has different hair types. Or like, if I put oil in my hair, I would look like an oil spill, but everyone has different hair types and everything. And you can just kind of find out what works for your hair. Oh, the other crazy thing, this was crazy. Pete, I'm sorry. I'm talking about all of your health issues. That's okay. (laughs) But Pete used to have this thing on his face. It's called rosacea or something. Okay. It was like this like red stuff under his eyes. And if I, if my skin gets really dried out, it'll come into my face and it it just looks really bad. But a couple years ago it got really bad and And it wasn't going away. We didn't really know what it was. So you went and I was using lotion on it. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't matter. Yeah, but you went to the dermatologist, and this is the funny thing, okay? I, and I, I respect doctors. I, I have some of the best, my pediatrician, my OBGYN, I have some of the best doctors, I feel like, in the country, honestly. But um, you went to the dermatologist, and the doctor told you that you were going to need laser treatment. Yeah, I was either going to have to start using this prescription um, ointment, and then if that didn't work, he'd talk to me that like we probably have to get like some kind of laser thing. Yeah, so a doctor told you to do laser treatments or a prescription. And again, what did you do to make it go yeah, away? Yeah. So it turns out I just put a little coconut oil on it. And you stopped using normal soap. I stopped using, yeah, right. Because the soap is so drying on your skin. Yeah, right. So And then uh, some coconut oil and it goes away. Yeah. but I And I just think it's kind of unfortunate that the doctor told you you would need laser treatments instead of just saying, you know, don't wash your face with soap. and Right. Try a little coconut oil. Try a little coconut oil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it works. So, and yeah, and you look wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so 
Cool. So that's our story with body products Yes. these days. Yeah, and I know if... It sounds really intimidating, but again, this stuff is really easy. And I remember thinking too, like, what did human beings do before we had all of this stuff that was invented? Well, they're in the probably kind of smelly. Years? Let's be honest. Yeah, maybe. I just, <laughs> I just, uh, I don't know. I'm realizing that like a little bit of oil, which they always had, goes a long way. Yeah. So definitely, coconut oil, almond oil. Yeah. yeah. There's lots of different natural and we can make you oils. know we can make the deodorant so we're not smelly. We can do that with a few ingredients that were always available to them too. So yeah. maybe some people figured it out. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So we've been building a foundation here for why we as a family want to step out of a lot of the systems in this world or do them differently or moderate them. We've been building that foundation and we're going to actually continue to do that again today. And we're going to talk about this idea of uh, called subsidiarity. So this is a Catholic social teaching, and it's a teaching that even a lot of Catholics, I think, don't really know much about. So first, yeah. let's start think, with the definition. But I think part of you know what we're trying to, because you know we made this chickens, cows, kids, and Catholics. This is all Catholic teaching. What we're talking about, right? So subsidiarity. Um, what that means is matters should be handled at the smallest or lowest or least centralized authority. Right. So we talk about either decisions that are going to be made or functions that happen, and we want them to happen at the lowest level of society possible. Right. And Pope Francis, in his encyclical, Laudato Si, says, um, he talks about, you know, applying the principle of subsidiarity, and he says it's the family that is the basic cell of society. Right. We talk about the lowest level of society or the, the most basic, the most granular part of society. That's the family. Right. And that is the bedrock of our society. And then if you go up a little from there, you'll find, you know, community organizations and neighborhoods and churches. You go up from there, you get to city and county government and then state government and federal government. And then even beyond that worldwide organization, um, so what what subsidiary is saying is that as you get further and further up that chain, there's a greater and greater possibility that decisions that are made or functions that happen are going to take away from human dignity mm-hmm. and quite possibly cause a whole bunch of other problems as right. well. Well, our, our own catechism talks about subsidiarity and it says that excessive intervention by the state can threaten personal freedom and initiative. So when we allow these bigger uh, forces and corporations and governments to do things for us. It takes away our creativity, our initiative as people. Right. Yeah. And we're not just talking about government. We're also talking about Pope Francis ties that in in Laudato Si. talks about this also means economics as well. Mm-hmm. So if you look that there's four meat packing companies that produce 80% of the beef in the United States, that's incredibly centralized. Right. That means that almost all of it is done by four companies. And and that's just an example. I mean, we know that, you know, you could pick 12 or 15 or 20 grocery stores and that's, you know, represents most of the grocery stores in the United States. Or, I mean, there's a very small amount of companies that provide most of what we um, use on our, in, in our day-to-day and in our economy. And that means it's centralized. It's very centralized. And I've seen that increase in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. So if I'm watching a presidential election and they've got all the candidates up there and they're asking them all questions, they say, well, what would you do about fill in the blank, dot, mm-hmm. dot, dot, is uh, pick some hard, complex problem. What would you do about it? And they're a Republican or a Democrat and they give their solution 
And what I've been waiting for is for one of those candidates to say, you know what? That's not the federal government's responsibility. We shouldn't be doing that. Here's what I think the solution is. I think the federal government should do whatever it can to support the states or support communities or support families because that's where the real solution is going to come from. And I would love to hear someone say that, but they don't. And I think not only do all these candidates and the people in power want to solve these problems, what I can see is that most everyone wants them to. Mm -hmm. Like, People get very offended if they feel like their president doesn't have an answer to a question. They, everybody wants the government to be solving the problems. Yeah. And uh, I think if we took that down a level, then you could say, if the government's not solving it, I kind of want a company to be doing that for me. I want yeah. them to give me the solution to whatever the problem is. Right. And uh, I think that that can cause a whole lot of problems. And so... Let's get into some of the examples so that this becomes a bit more concrete. Mm -hmm. If most people saw, we've talked about this before, if most people saw the way their chicken was raised, they wouldn't buy it. They wouldn't want it. And they'd say, wow, there's a lot of problems here. So the way that most of the chicken gets produced, the reason it can keep happening is because it's been abstracted away and we don't see it and we don't know. And there's a centralized group of corporations that set all the standards for that and lobby the government, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, someone might say, okay, well, you're putting antibiotics in your chicken feed, and that's bad. We should have the chicken corporation stop doing that. And I would agree, that's a good thing. I mean, that would be a right decision, and it would, it would be a step in the right direction. But what we're saying is that as long as the entire industry is so centralized, it'll probably never be right. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do, what we feel like the real solution is, is to opt out. Let's just not be a part of that system anymore. Because as soon as you get down to a lower level where that function can happen, either at a local level or ideally even down to a family level, then then the chickens are going to get raised in a really good way. Um, so that's one example. Another example is education. Yeah. Again, this is an issue that I've seen where people ask questions, well, how are we going to make education better in the country? And you hear people in the federal government say, well, here's my solution or this is my solution. And what I see then is things like standardized testing and common core and that there's some kind of centralized solution to education, which is completely the opposite of what I feel like psychologists have been learning, which is that each kid learns in a completely different way from each other. Right. And maybe common core is really good for some kids. I don't know. I don't really know anything about it. Right. But what I know is it's not going to be a good solution for every kid. Right. And, you know, we're talking about subsidiarity. Subsidiarity wants to bring decisions back to the lowest level, which is the family. And who better to know how to educate that child than the parents? Right. We have four kids and they seem at this point like they learn four completely different ways. Yeah. And so putting them all into a standardized setting where they have to learn the same as all other children doesn't seem like it makes any sense to me. Right. And we're not saying that we're not saying that every child should be homeschooled at all. We're saying every parent should have the choice of how they want their child educated. Right. I mean, we feel strongly about our kids' education and we're really involved in it. And I think most parents are. So we say this with total respect. We're not saying that homeschooling is the answer for everybody and government schooling is not the answer for everybody and private schooling is not the answer for everybody. But what the right solution is, is that each each parent 
gets to choose what's best for their kids. And then the mm-hmm. government's job is to support that decision. Yeah, and to, to help make that possible. Right. And I mean, there's countries in the world, like Germany, where homeschooling is illegal. Yeah. We're kind of in the middle here. So the government says, sure, if you want to do that, you can, in Maryland at least. Um, no, every, every state you can homeschool. Okay. And then, uh, you know, we still have to pay taxes to support the government schools, but at least we get to make the decision to not send our kids there. Right. It's really interesting. Um, I feel like today homeschooling, or in our area at least, homeschooling is becoming really common. So when I tell people I homeschool, I just get, oh, neat. I, I get, you know, nice comments. But I've had a couple people ask me, well, are you, are you a teacher? Do you, have you, do you know how to educate? You know, people ask me, like, well, how are you going to teach them if, you don't, if you're not a teacher? Because I have absolutely no teaching background. I didn't, I didn't study that in college or education, but I know my kids and I'm smart and (laughs) I am fully confident that I can teach them because I know them and I, I know how they learn and I know how to interact with them. And my kids are doing, they're doing great. And again, not, not every kid homeschooling would not work out for every kid, but it works out really well for my kids. Yeah. I remember if I was at school and there was something I didn't get, I'd come home and my dad would tutor me and yeah, he didn't have a degree in education, but, mm-hmm. um, he knew me and he knew what, how to communicate to me so that I would learn it. And that was all that was really necessary. There's kids that are kinetic learners and kids that learn from being taught and kids that learn from reading, kids that learn from doing and kids with, you know, issues with being bullied. And, you know, like there's there's such a varied set of circumstances for how a kid's going to have a good childhood and a good education. And the more diversity that we could bring into a school system so that parents can can choose what's best for their kid, the better. And that's not going to happen if we centralize more and more education. I mean, I think there's very little that the federal government should be involved in, and it should push most things down to the state, which should push most things down to the county, which should then uh, support parents and assort, uh, support communities in providing really good schooling choices choices for their kids. Yeah. All right. So another example is, uh, and I think part of the part of the the question here is like, well, what happens when there's really complex problems? Shouldn't the government be solving those for us? And I think that if we got really creative. Uh, and thought differently about some of this stuff, the answer would still usually be no, we don't want the government involved. They cause problems. So an example of that is Haiti. Haiti is the poorest country in the Eastern Hemisphere. Eastern Hemisphere? Western, Western (laughs) Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah, poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And they've got, you know, loads of problems and bad governments throughout all the years. And it's like, well, shouldn't the government fix that? And then the government does have some role to play there. But I was talking to my friend who went down to Haiti a number of times. He have uh, a sister parish there. And he was talking to the people down there. And they said that the, the U.S. government made it possible to bring in rice for really, really cheap prices because they wanted to help you know, feed people. But what it did was it immediately put out of business a bunch of the rice farmers in Haiti mm. because they couldn't produce it for that price. And so the government wants to solve something, but they, they cause another problem in the midst of trying to solve it. And I was a part of a parish who had a sister school down there, and the people in my parish got to know them over the years and provide a lot of support and 
provide a way to to help solve the problems and it was on a community to community basis where conversation could take place right like well your mom was on the it, the Haiti committee right and she could talk to the sisters who were running this school and find out what do you really need instead of saying like, hey, we think this is what you need and you send them a bunch of stuff that they don't need. What do you really need? How can we help you? Right. And How is this going to benefit your families and your yeah. communities? I mean, we are, of course, strong believers in in helping the poor. I mean, that is a Christian call, but it's, I think it's important to do it on a personal basis with like... Again, I'm going to quote the catechism that excessive intervention by the state can threaten personal freedom and initiative. And how can we respect these people's freedom and their initiative and be of support to them? Right. And does the government have some role to play? Probably. I mean, if, if there's some kind of big disaster and you need, you know, you need a really big organization to come in there and help, maybe mm-hmm. the federal government has a role in that. But I feel like the majority of the actual help that will be useful is going to come on a much smaller, smaller level, which again is subsidiarity. Yeah. Um, real quick, speaking of Haiti, um, last year, Pete's mom brought these three Haitian nuns. They came to visit and and they got some medical care. They had a dentist in the parish that helped work on one of their teeth. And, you know, they came up, they came up for a visit, but they came to our farm and they were the sweetest, cutest nuns. They didn't speak any English and I didn't speak their language, but they were just so joyful and they kept just, they were just laughing. They were walking around laughing the entire time. I don't know what they were laughing. <laughs> they were, they they were just so wonderful. were laughing. And they wanted to see my school books that I had for the kids. And they were just looking through because the, they're teachers. They run a school. And they were just looking through and talking and laughing. And they were just, I mean, to live it, they live in such poverty and they see such devastation. And, but they, I mean, they yeah, were whatever just, they had, I want more. Oh my of gosh. It. They were the most joyful. They didn't stop smiling. They didn't stop laughing. Um, oh, they went to the, the, they loved our little playground. They were so cute. Oh, it was, it was excellent. <laughs> it, was, it was excellent. <laughs> yeah. So here's another interesting point, which is a little bit, uh, come at it from a different angle, but I'm a software engineer and I've noticed this thing that's happened over the last five years or so in software engineering. And if you use a program like Netflix or Amazon, to you, it looks like this computer program that you sign in on your browser and you use. And uh, what would happen behind the scenes in software engineering is you would have probably a small group of people that would start writing that program. And if it had success, then they would build and it would get more complicated and have more features and have more data and then start to have more users. And eventually you could end up with millions of users and tons of data and all of this functionality. And that program would get very, very complex. I mean, incredibly complex. And what software people were finding is that it wasn't scaling. It had all kinds of technical problems. Um, with how to maintain it and how to update it and how to keep it from having bugs and, and all kinds of issues. So the solution was, so this is a very centralized piece of software. They call it a monolith. And the solution then is to break it up into dozens and dozens of pieces called microservices. So take something that was very centralized and as soon as it got really big and complex, it was hard to keep it running and had all kinds of overhead and tons of technical challenges, the solution is to break it up into all kinds of different pieces. I think that's so interesting because from a, I mean, there's nothing morally involved there about software, but it's like, even from a purely uh, functional standpoint, distributing that centralized thing into to m- many smaller pieces is how you solve a lot of the challenges. So if smaller is 
more efficient and and better? Why is everything so centralized? That's the big question is if if smaller is better on almost every possible level, then why is everything becoming centralized? And I think there's what I can see is there's two big answers to that. And the first one is related to government, which is governments tend towards wanting more control. And if people are willing to let them have the control, they're going to always try and take it. The, at the highest levels of government, they're going to try and solve more and more problems and take more and more control, which means that people have less and less control and freedom. And so if people are okay with that and they want the federal government to solve all their problems, then that's going to be the direction it goes in. And then from an economics point of view is uh, companies want to make more profit. In a capitalistic society, that's what they want to do. They want to make more profit, which means putting out of business smaller entities. Mm -hmm. And so again, if, if people are willing to do that and say, well, I want this this product and I don't care that it's coming from a centralized organization. And I, I want can, it really cheap. Yeah, I want it really cheap, then then that's going to happen over time. Yeah, it's just so hard. We live in a time where I feel like you can have so many things that you want because they're so cheap. Right. And right. And and so so we've been talking about all of these problems and it's like it can be a little disconcerting. Like, well what do we do about it? And the answer is actually really simple and really empowering. The answer is we opt out. We stop giving our freedom to the to the higher levels of government. We stop buying products from organizations that have become too centralized. Right. And I think the question that we need to ask is, are we happier when we have... So we, we have all these big corporations making everything for us and doing everything for us from your, your food to your deodorant to your just you know, anything you want, they're doing it for you. And then the government doing everything for you. Right. What's the next thing that I can have that's put in front of me that I can purchase and and take? I think it's really easy and it's tempting to have all these things done for us, all these things made for us so we can be freed up and we can be entertained. But I'm not sure that it's really bringing us fulfillment and it's really bringing us happiness. Um, I can't, I know this is a silly example, but you know, just, just having the the creativity and the initiative to make something as simple as my own body products, our own deodorant. I mean, I know it sounds silly, but that's just, it's kind of empowering. Like I don't have to rely on this store for this and to use their chemicals. I can do it myself, or I don't have to rely on the government schools to educate my children in the way that they see fit. I have the power to educate my kids and that is fulfilling. It's absolutely right. When we plant our own apple trees or do our education or start making our own products is there's two things that happen. We feel like we have that initiative back in our life again, and it also simplifies a lot. I mean, we're, we're out there as a culture buying tons and tons of stuff and having more and more done for us, but everybody looks just as busy as before and simply getting all of these new products or pleasures or, or watching all these different shows and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is it really making us satisfied? And I don't think that it is. Um, this says from Laudato Si, Pope Francis says, many people know that our current progress and the mere amassing of things and pleasures are not enough to give meaning and joy to the human heart. Yet they feel unable to give up what the market sets before them. So I think a lot of people feel that. Like, this is not making me truly happy, but how do I give it up? How do I do it differently? Yeah, it's so tempting. I can have this. It can be so much easier. Right. I'm just going to, I can purchase it for very little money or whatever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, so the answer to that, again, from a little to see, 
Um, Pope Francis says Christian spirituality proposes an alternative understanding to the quality of life and encourages a prophetic and contemplative lifestyle, one capable of deep enjoyment, free of the obsession with consumption. We need to take up an ancient lesson found in different religious traditions and also in the Bible. It is a conviction that less is more. I mean, that is, and that is so against what our culture is telling us now, which is more, 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 buy, 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 have, have, have. Right. And we know this. Like if we spend a few weeks in a row, it usually happens around the holidays where we're just eating all of this really good food and all of these special things. You reach this point afterwards, you're like, oh, I don't even want it anymore. This is not satisfying me. I need to yeah. go back to a simple diet, yeah. which is what satisfies me. Yeah. And, and a lot of these things, like for example, real food, is more expensive. And, you know, it's hard to buy the the real food that is the moral food that is expensive when you can have the food for real cheap. And that's where I think we have to remember, hey, less is more. Maybe you can't eat beef every night anymore. Maybe you can't afford that. Maybe you can have it less, but have a high, higher quality of it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess, is that it for today? That's it for today. Yeah, that's some heavy stuff. So just remember subsidiarity and remember that chemicals are absorbed through the skin. Those are our two <laughs> lessons of the day. Right. And I just want to say thank you to the people who left reviews on iTunes. It's, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, it's really encouraging and it allows other families to find this. So thank you so much. And we hope that you will join us next time. Have a good day, everyone.